Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Acts then, Acts chapter 27. Uh, We just have this passage today, this Sunday, and then next Sunday to finish uh, our series in the book of Acts. And we've reached this great chapter, Acts chapter 27. Have a look at verse 10 of the chapter, Paul warning, warning his companions. This chapter is all about danger on the high seas. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. Don't do it, Paul is saying. Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship. Makes sense, doesn't it? Paul is a preacher, not a ship commander. Paid more attention to them than to what Paul had said. Let's read from verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. 
saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or in pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Amen. If you have the order of service in front of you, you'll see that our sermon title, our famous words, you may know these from a hymn, Behind a Frowning Provident. Providence. It's a hymn we've often sung here at Trinity. It comes from William Cowper's great hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That is a poet's expression of one of the great mysteries of life for the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Why, Lord? Why this, Lord? If you are good, Lord, and if you are smiling towards me, why hide the smile with a frown? The gloom of my circumstances, the difficulty of my life, it is a painful mystery, isn't it? It's not an abstract question for us, for any of us here today, isn't it? Here we are together, real people, in real pain, I guess many of us here today with real plans turned on their head, lives turned upside down and inside out in 2020. Why, Lord? Why this? Why the frown, the smile hidden? And so here we are together this morning with Acts chapter 27. Just what the doctor ordered, right? You probably don't know, but Acts chapter 27, what we've just read is the most detailed, precise, and accurate description of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. So you will not find any more detail in any ancient text about an ancient ship than what you have in front of you this morning. Is that why you came to church? Is that what got you out of bed? Maritime exercises? Depends what you're like, doesn't it? Travel writing is really interesting for some people if you're Michael Palin or Bill Bryson, if you like their kind of stuff. But if you do like their material, if you watch their programs or read their books, if you venture into the Himalayas with Palin, isn't it true 
that it is their interpretation of their travels that is what makes them most interesting. I can guarantee that any Michael Palin program, if you put it on your television and turn off the sound and there are no subtitles and no words appear anywhere on the screen, you might have some spectacular images, a train going from one end of the world to the other or something like that. But is it not true you would not know what you're looking at? Beautiful images, but where, what, why, how? What are the words, words of interpretation that explain the sights and sounds of these chapters? That's the question, isn't it? What are we looking at here in Acts 27 as we see a ship on the high seas and dashed on the rocks? What are we looking at as we see a frail and unimpressive man crawling onto the shore, hanging on to his life by a thread? So all I want us to do together is what we do week by week here, interrogate the passage together. Interrogate the text in front of you, whether it's on paper, in your Bible, on a phone. Interrogate it for the words in it that tell us what it all means. And here's what I want to show us. Here's what we're going to see together. God's providence is here again, a rich, deep well of God ordering all the events of the world, your life and my life and Paul's life. Every single detail of our lives ordered. Two ways to see here. Number one, a desired goal. And number two, an undesired condition. A desired goal, an undesired condition. God's providence is seen in both of these things. And I'm going to try and show us both of these things really quite quickly. And then I want to give us one main beautiful truth for us to live inside, try and apply it for us. So two things. Number one, Paul's desired goal. The thing that Paul is aiming for, the thing that God has said will happen, that's the key to these chapters. It's so long ago now since we started the book of Acts. I can't remember when we started. It feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? But do you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, probably the most famous verse in the book? You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. That is what Rome is. The very ends of the earth. Rome presided magisterially over the whole known world. And here's one ancient writer on the significance of Rome. To a Roman, the city of Rome was the center of the universe. From the golden milestone in the forum at Rome, roads went out in all directions to all parts of the empire. You've seen it, haven't you? If you watch films on TV about the expansion of Rome, Gladiator opens with the barbarian hordes in Germany being conquered. The last outpost as Rome spreads its tentacles all over the known earth. Paul said in chapter 19, I must visit Rome The Lord Jesus himself told Paul, chapter 23, you must testify in Rome. You will testify in Rome. And look at our passage today again, verse 24. This angel who appears to Paul, you must stand before Caesar. That is the desired goal in in this chapter, the, the end to which everything is working. And that desired goal, Paul's desired goal, is a divine promise, isn't it? God has promised Paul he will get to Rome. 
These chapters are carried on the wheels of that promise. Luke is giving us an example here of what it means to have a divine promise in a world of chaos and disaster and ever-changing circumstances. That's the point of the shipwreck narrative because it is a great climax to the ongoing story of Acts that God's servants suffer calamity after calamity, disaster upon disaster, and none of it, absolutely none of it, derails God's promise. Nothing. See, we approach chapter 27 like we have been from chapter 23 onwards. We approach it knowing in advance that Paul is going to make it to Rome, don't we? We know the conclusion. And what Luke is doing by giving us so much detail about a ship being broken apart on the seas is he's increasing the excitement for us, the tension of the story, precisely by showing us that when all hope seems to be lost, it can't be. Because we know the promise. Look how it all unfolds. Verse 10, how we began. Paul warns of impending doom. It's a skillful thing to do in storytelling, isn't it? Don't do, don't do A, because if you do A, we will all die. And along comes someone who decides to do A. So if they're all going to die, but we know Paul can't die, what is going to happen? Here comes the wind, the northeaster sets in, and they they literally pass ropes underneath the hull to bind the ship together. The cargo goes overboard. They spend days in total blackness. Verse 20, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. But Paul cannot die, we know. So what will happen? And again, after 14 days, the whole saga is more or less repeated again. 14 days. Can you imagine it? 14 days with a ship breaking apart around you. 14 days with no food, no drink. We're meant to understand how terrifying it is that it's hardened sailors who are wanting to cut and run. They're the ones trying to leave the soldiers and the prisoners to their death. And yet, verse 31, Paul ends up giving the orders. Is that not astonishing? The prisoner at the helm Why can he do that? How can he do that? Because nothing will stop him reaching Rome. Nothing. Absolutely nothing can stop him. Do you know that today? Do you know that about today? Whatever is going on in your heart and mind that you've brought with you here with the Bible in front of you, do you know that God's desired goals are always reached? God's desired goals are always, always reached. His plans always succeed. His targets are always met. God's people get to where God has promised they will get to in the end, always. But here's the second thing to notice. Not just a desired goal, Paul's desired goal, God's desired goal. Notice an undesired condition. An undesired condition. Look at the very last verse of our chapter and answer for yourself the question, what kind of shape is Paul in by the time he makes it to Rome? Does Paul sail into Rome in a chariot on a white horse, welcomed? No, he arrives, doesn't he, a prisoner of Rome, broken and battered by the elements, broken and battered by his enemies. How many times has he cheated death along the way? beaten, imprisoned, 
ridiculed, mistreated. And when Jesus said to Paul, you will testify in Rome, none of that was included in the job description. He did not tell him everything that was going to happen to him along the way. It's very likely that when Paul thought he was going to Rome, it is very likely that he did not envisage doing so as a prisoner. And yet that's how he arrives in Rome, enemy of the state, in a condition he did not choose and would not have chosen if left to his own devices. Behind a frowning providence. Do you see God's frown? Shipwrecked, beaten, persecuted, imprisoned, maligned, misunderstood, mistreated, two weeks without food. Where are you, Lord? Our friends today, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Don't judge the Lord by the feeble light of our eyes and our ears and the things that are happening to our body and the things we watch on the TV screen alone. These senses that we have do not tell the full story, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You will get to Rome. I know what I'm doing, Paul. You may not desire the route to Rome, but I am in charge of it all. And if I know how this will end up, don't you think, Paul, I know what I'm doing in getting you there? If I choose to get you there in a way of my working, my choosing? A desired goal, Rome. An undesired condition, suffering. And embedded in all of this is one beautiful truth that I just want us to climb up inside. You know how to do that just to to see a promise that God gives us one beautiful truth and to lift your heart and mind up into it and to, to marinate in it, to stay there, to sit in it. I want to just give you this beautiful truth. Look at verse 22 and verse 24 again. 22 to 24. Why does Paul tell these hardened sailors not to lose heart? Why does he know this will all work out okay? Verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Friends, here's the point. Paul knows he is invincible until God's purpose for him is complete. Paul knows he is invincible until God's purpose for him has run its course. And that is exactly the same for you and me today. Probably don't feel like that. You didn't get out of bed, I imagine, many of us and say, I am invincible this morning. But it is true. Until God's purpose for you is complete, you are invincible. No one and nothing can touch you until God says, my purpose for them is realized, for him, for her. Just a couple of months ago, I was preparing to take a funeral service. It was a a difficult circumstance, a lot of pain and bewilderment bewilderment in the family. Wonderfully, the Lord was known in the family, but there was a lot of pain. Friday afternoon, just before the funeral, 
Angela was cooking in the kitchen, listening to a podcast. I think it was, I think it was Nancy Guthrie, a woman in America. And she was talking about the loss of a child. Her and her husband lost a child years ago. And she said this, What gives me the deepest comfort is knowing that God's purpose was perfectly accomplished in my child's life in the number of days God gave to them. My deepest comfort is that God's purpose was completely realized, completely fulfilled, completely accomplished in my child's life in the number of days God gave to them. There is a world of deepest truth in that sentence, friends. When the time came for breath to leave that child's body, for one breath to be their very last breath, at that moment, God's purpose for them was not thwarted, was not derailed, was not harmed. God's desired goal for them was not frustrated, not interrupted, but perfectly accomplished. And there and then, sitting in our kitchen, in a moment, I saw the providence of God in the life of the loved one whose funeral I was about to take. I saw it in a whole new way. We are here in a funeral service, grieving, heartbroken, angry. And our purposes are interrupted. Our plans have been put into reverse. Complete disarray. But your purposes, Lord, for this person have been perfectly accomplished in the number of days you gave to them. I think that is the God we meet on the high seas in Acts chapter 27. Look at it. The world is in uproar. Beams of wood are literally splintering apart. And God is saying to Paul, I have got you. And all the details of your life, all the attempted assassination plots, the attempts to rid you from the earth, the attempts to stop you going to places where you want to go to, all of that I have got every single part of it in my hand. My plans will come to pass. Listen to our church family doctrinal basis. Here's what we believe As a church family, the Westminster Confession of Faith, listen to this. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. God from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordains whatever comes to pass. Friends, the doctrine of providence says to you and I today, learn to hide yourself in God's promises. Learn to wrap them around you every single day, to to clothe yourself in them. For what God has said he will do, he will do. And and if you wrap yourself in promise, I remember a couple of weeks ago I said it's like stepping into a roller coaster. No one in their right mind steps onto a roller coaster without, well, the last one I did had a seatbelt and a bar in front, two things. Who in their right mind rides a roller coaster without the buckle around you, steel encasing you, holding you fast? 
If you wrap yourself in God's promises, you, you ride the roller coaster of life, you enter the whirlwind knowing how this will all end. You do not know what's over the hill and round the corner and upside down. You know how it will end. Maybe, maybe today you're just learning to do that for the very first time, learning to, learning to take hold of a promise as something that is more real than even passion or pain. Did you know that? That God's promises are more real than even passion or pain. See, we're, we're different, aren't we? We're all different ages here today, different life experiences. I think it's very possible there are people here today in our midst and you're living in days of passion. You're, you're young, I guess. The world is your oyster. Obviously, everything's different at the minute with COVID, isn't it? But life moves smoothly on the whole. Why do I need a promise? Promise is just a word, isn't it? It's just words spoken. What difference does a promise make to life? Life is fine. Others of us, of course, are at the different point of the spectrum, aren't we? We are here today only because we dragged ourselves here. It took every, every ounce of willpower we had to get here. We are staggering through days of numbing pain. And we too think, what good is a promise? It's just words. It doesn't comfort me in my sorrow. Tim Keller, American pastor, he he looks at this problem and he gives the example of marriage. Okay, pastor in New York, um, living with uh, people all around him with, um, you know, rebelling against any kind of idea of fixed states of relationship. Tim Keller says, all through my ministry, I've had young people say to me, what is the point of a piece of paper? What's the point of getting married? I don't need a piece of paper to prove my love. Don't need to get married. Don't need, don't need to sign anything on the dotted line. And Tim Keller says he's come to realize that the best answer to people like that is to say to them that you are forgetting that the essence of true love is to promise. The very essence of love is to promise. What do breathless lovers say to each other? Not just, I love you, but isn't it true that lovers say to each other, I will love you forever? Love at its height promises permanence. You, you can't stop it happening. It, it, it spills out. That's why we have a marriage ceremony, not to watch a young couple standing there in all their finery telling each other that they love each other today. Every, everyone can see that they love each other. No, the whole point of a marriage ceremony is because we want to hear said out loud again and to all of us and to all the world that the promise of love for tomorrow is the greatest expression of love that there is. I will love you come what may in sickness and in health for better and for worse until death us do part. Our friends, love is one thing, isn't it? But public promise of future love. Now that's romance. And what is the gospel other than a promise of love, a promise of love spoken, signed and sealed in blood. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Promise. There is a heaven. There is a hell. 
promise. This world in which we live, the creation is groaning, isn't it? Creaking, crying out in agony like a woman in a labor ward giving birth. This creation is doing that because there is something new on the way. A new creation is coming. Promise. This world one day will be liberated from its bondage to decay. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Promise. There is nothing you face today. Absolutely nothing about your marriage, about your job, about your health, about your status in life, about your children, about your parents. Nothing in all the things that are causing you the most private pain that nobody else knows about. Nothing in all those things that means God has forgotten you and that he will break what he has said he will do. Nothing. One day he will present you spotless, mature, blameless to Christ his son, your king, our bridegroom. Promise. That is how deep and rich and wide God's providence is. You see, see, you may feel if you're like me, you, you, you spend a lot of time living in an undesired condition. I didn't expect life to turn out like this, Lord. I thought things would be different by now at least. I didn't expect to have to go this far down this particular route. Maybe right at the minute you are living in a condition where you cannot see any light at the end of the tunnel, any any big picture point to what is happening. I think it's like that for all of us, isn't it, with the pandemic? What is the point? What are you doing, Lord? Is it possible, friends, that God is doing something in you or with you, or for you, which is one day going to be to your greater good and the greater good of others, the greater good of the gospel, which you cannot see. I think Luke would say he has to be doing that. There are undesired conditions in your life that God is in charge of. Just think about our New Testament friends. This man in verse 44, crawling onto dry land. What was God doing in Paul's life? Think of the New Testament letters. You you close the book of Acts, come to Romans. From then on, Paul is writing to churches full of problems. If there were no problems in churches, we would not have the New Testament. That's why the letters are written for Paul sorting out difficult people and problem places and upset churches. God is at work giving us the Bible because there are problems. And more than that, who is it that does the writing to these difficult churches? It is a man who has been within a hair's breadth of death, whose body has been broken, who knows what it is to suffer. Because of what God did with Paul, we have all those letters that we underline and cherish and love. there, There is nothing about what is happening to me or to you that has God wringing his hands. This, this world in which we live, he rules with justice and righteousness. He leads his people with fatherly care and love. And like the Apostle Paul, remember what we've seen, that the ending of Paul's life, what, it, what is Luke showing us? He is mapping the end of Paul's life onto the end of the Lord Jesus' life. Five trials for Christ at the end. Five trials for Paul at the end. As to the master, so to the servant. As to Christ, so to us, his people. 
undesired conditions can be the very things that God uses to bring about the greatest gospel blessing in the world. Many of you, many of you here in church, you've heard me say this so many times about a man called Gerald Sitzer. Um, but not everybody's come across him. Gerald Sitzer is an academic in America. And in the autumn of 1991 in rural Idaho, he was driving with his wife, four children and his mother. And their car was struck by a drunk driver. And in one moment, he lost his wife, his mother and his four-year-old daughter. And in the aftermath of that terrible accident, Gerald Sitzer wrote a book, many of us have read it, a beautiful, profoundly moving book on loss and sorrow. It's called A Grace Disguised. And the, the, the book A Grace Disguised is amazing, but several years later, he came to write a second edition to that book. Here's what he says eight years later. My rawness and utter bewilderment have now given way to contentment and deep gratitude. My story has turned out to be redemptive, not only for me and my children, but also for many others also. Thousands and thousands of people wrote to him after reading his book. And then he says this, as strange as it might sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have, though without the acute suffering. Now, I think, friends, it is remarkable that he was ever able to describe what happened to him as a grace disguised. Can you imagine that? A grace disguised. And yet more than that, he ends up standing in a place where he has received the kind of gifts from his suffering he wishes others could share. That is surely a profound surprise to us. He even writes of the sickness of the soul that can only be healed through suffering. Well, friends, don't you think it's true? You and I, me, I say this to myself. We are the generation that wants everything that stands in our way to be eliminated. We are the generation who can click buttons and make problems disappear. Click buttons and things that we want arrive within hours or at the very latest 24 hours. We want to fix everything, remove everything, overcome everything. Let me tell you, if you'd watched the news with me all year long, you would know how true that is, the things I've said in my living room. Why this, Lord? Take it away, Lord. We want to get on with the life we think we deserve and we need. We just want the smiling face, Lord, please. Why the frown? These undesired conditions of our lives, they try us. They expose our sins, they build our character, and they can bring us to know God better. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. And ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. You know, Martin Luther said, I never knew the meaning of the Bible until I came into affliction. I never knew the meaning of God's word until I suffered. Why is that? It is because the very words of the Bible, so much of them are written by suffering people. Luther said, affliction is the Christian's theologian. 
And friends, I don't think we can ever think like this or live like this unless we first of all believe there is a promise-speaking, promise-keeping God. That is what gives birth to it. You have said it, Lord, and because you have said it, so it will be. You know, one of the most helpful images, I can't remember where I heard it first, one of the most helpful images to me in recent years has been to think of my own life as like a film however long it ends up being. And what are we like with our own individual stories? We want to so often say, why, Lord? Why this? This isn't fair. This isn't right. Imagine instead of just your life, my life, these short years we have as a film, imagine now the whole story of time from beginning to end, the beginning of the universe to the end of time as one enormous film story. God is the director ordering it all telling the most beautiful story the world, the universe will ever have known and seen. And here we are in the middle with our little 20-second clip complaining to the director. It's like putting on your film that you watched last night, five minutes into it, stopping, pausing, and getting out your phone and texting or emailing the director and saying, no, you've made a mistake. This isn't going in the right direction. Something's wrong here. What, what What would we say? We'd say, wait to the end. Everything will be clear. All becomes obvious. Friends, for you and me, so it is with a God of providence. Ordering a universe from beginning to end. Every single part of our lives held in his loving hands. A story with no mistakes, no accidents, no drop stitches. But only what he lovingly gives, his fatherly hand holding us all, holding you, holding me. Amen.